Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Hello, my name is Lieutenant Colonel Langley Sharp, and it is my privilege today to introduce our guest, Imam Asim Hafiz. Born in 1976 in East London, Imam Asim has trained for 10 years at the Islamic College in England as both an Imam and Islamic scholar. In October 2005, he was appointed the first and only Muslim chaplain to the British Armed Forces. And for just over 15 years, he has been ensuring the religious, spiritual and pastoral needs of the Muslim service personnel community are fully met. Between the years of 2010 and 2011, Imam Asim completed a number of short visits to Afghanistan, performing his military chaplaincy duties and providing religious advice to UK and US commanders. In 2012, he was deployed for a seven-month operational tour of Afghanistan as part of the UK's and International Security Assistance Forces effort to increase the role of religious understanding to promote peace, stability and conflict termination. He is currently appointed as the dedicated Islamic religious advisor to Chief of the Defence Staff and Service Chiefs, as well as Imam to the Forces. This new role seeks to enhance the armed forces engagement with and understanding of Muslim communities in the UK as well as overseas. Imam Asim, welcome to the podcast. It's a, an absolute privilege to have you on the show. I know. Thank you very much. Um, you put me alongside some really great leaders. So um, um, thank you very much for that. But that's really very kind of you. But I'm looking forward to being able to contribute. Hope I can do it justice. I'm sure you will. Absolutely sure of it. So to um, to start then, to set the context of the conversation, it will be uh, it'll be good to know a little bit more about yourself. So what were your formative years like as a young man growing up and and how did your faith shape you as the the person you are today, the leader you are today? Mm. Well, um, you know, I come from a migrant family. Uh, my My father, my parents kind of when my father got here in the late 60s, my mother joined him in the early 70s. And then, you know, I was born uh, in in the mid 70s um, in East London. So I was born and bred in uh, and brought up in East London. Coincidentally, that's where um, David Beckham was born as well. <laughs> uh, so I'm from the same place um, uh, uh, that David Beckham um, grew up. So um, there was a lot of religion in the family. It was, it, you know, it was... Uh, um, there was a lot of people coming and going. I can remember having lots of fun playing in the garden, the long summers, getting up to some mischief uh, <laughs> with, uh, with 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 friends. And um, you know, I can also remember the the challenges um, you know uh, my parents faced of uh, you know in bringing us up in this in this new environment in this new country. Um, you know, in a sense, my father having. Uh, a foot in 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 this country, but also having a foot where he'd left his parents in uh, in the other country that he came from, and that was actually from India. Mm-hmm. So um, a, a very busy uh, household, uh, lots of people getting together, lots of food, lots of guests, lots of footfall, and um, my my father kind of holding all of that uh, all of that extended family uh, kind of together. So you know they're part, uh, a very kind of patriarchal. Um, environment, I guess that, to an extent that I was I was brought up in. But it was around about when I was about thirteen, actually, that um, I uh, went off to an Islamic seminary. So the very formative years of my life, from thirteen to twenty-three, um, I was in an I was in an Islamic seminary, and so religion played a very key part in making me who who I am. 
and and religion and faith has played an important role in helping me understand what kind of leader I would like to be and what kind of leadership skills and leadership ideology I should adopt. And, you know, being a Muslim, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is, you know, one of the first people that I would turn to for that kind of inspiration. And it's really interesting when, you know, when I first worked with the armed forces and I went to Sandhurst and I saw your motto was serve to lead. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, straight away, it took me back to one of the statements of the, the Prophet Muhammad, where he says in Arabic, Sayyidul Qawmi Khadimuhum, meaning that the leader of a nation is their servant. Um, so, you know, it's like um, it was just exactly the same. And so I was pretty inspired uh, by that. And at that point, I knew I'd made the right decision to come and work for, for the armed forces because um, the, the leadership philosophy was the same. Um, and so humility, um, and it was, a very, you know, the Prophet Muhammad's leadership style was very much about being there for his, for his people. It was a very people-centric leadership style. You know, in a sense, what I learned from the biography of the prophet is that in order to get to God, you have to go through the people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you you can't know God if you don't know your people. And so you find that, you know, when his people were hungry, he was hungry. When they were happy, he was happy. Um, when they were persecuted, he was being persecuted. Um, when they were exiled, he was exiled. You know, he, there was this no idea of sitting on in an ivory tower on a throne somewhere. So he wasn't a king ruler. He was very much with the people. Um, and so that, um, you know, I took a lot of ins- inspiration from that. Um, when his people were challenged, he looked for ways of overcoming those challenges. And, you know, when, when it comes to when his people were at war, he was at war with them and he was on the front line. Um, there was one battle, it's called the Battle of the Trenches. And um, uh, they had to actually build, um, they had to dig out a really big trench. Basically, he goes down into the trench because they've come across this rock which they can't break. And so basically, he, he gets down into, uh, into the trench with them. And, you know, with the strength that he has, he's able to break that, break that rock that was in the way from you know, um, um, making this trench um, strong enough to, or, or capable enough to um, uh, make sure the enemy doesn't come across. But then, but then his companions lift up their shirts and say, look, we've, we're so hungry. Um, we've had to tie a rock to our stomach because there's no food. And um, he lifts up his shirt and he has two rocks or two stones tied to his stomach. So if they were hungry, he was twice as hungry. And so this is, you know, the kind of leadership that I took uh, inspiration from and I continue to take inspiration from. It's fantastic. I mean, you set us up really well for some, uh, few, for some questions that we've got coming up. But I mean, the clear synergies between uh, the Islamic faith, as you've described there, and the leadership of the uh, Prophet Muhammad and, and, and some of the core values of, of the British Army really ring true. Servant leadership, leading by example, knowing your people to name but a few. But returning to your your formative years, clearly a real sense of uh, family and a real sense of community. Were there particular individuals that, that were your key influences, whether through faith or, or or through your community? Well, you know, from 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 my family perspective, particularly when I was young, uh, I think you get a little bit wiser as you get older. But my fa- my father was definitely a, a key. Um, motivated for me uh, in, in my early years. 
you know, he was not only uh, someone who had got a position within the community, he had a position within the mosque, but at the same time, he was, you know, working hard to set up a business and run a business to make uh, ends meet. And so, you know, that multitasking um, and those multiple roles that he had and the, those responsibilities that he had and, and the way he carried himself in those particular roles was was definitely inspirational. And, you know, going forward, you know, once I got to um, a seminary, you know, I uh, had a spiritual mentor who sadly died about uh, two, two years ago. Um, and, you know, he definitely inspired me because what I learned from him was that there is a spiritual component to leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk a lot about intellectual capacity and capability Um, and I sometimes think that we forget you know how important EQ emotional intelligence is alongside you know IQ Mm -hmm. and uh, alongside that which is a new emerging idea of of um of of leadership is uh, spiritually intelligent. You know, how much are you in tune with yourself and therefore with others? Um, And how through that spiritual depth do you give people uh, a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning and a sense of belief in what you are leading them to or in? Do you think that spiritual intelligence goes beyond um, just the boundaries of faith? So for those that don't necessarily have faith, they Mm -hmm. can still have spiritual intelligence? Yeah, absolutely. You know, abs- uh, spiritual intelligence, you know, uh, is about, you know, ultimately it's about getting getting to know yourself. Um, emotional intelligence kind of allows you to uh, make people feel good about themselves, mm-hmm. if I can put it that way. They have confidence in you as a leader you, and you give them confidence to, to do the task uh, and to buy into the task. Uh, spiritual leadership, ultimately, uh, or, uh, intelligence is about um, giving, uh, making the task part of the people or people part of the task, if I yes. can put it that way. And so you're not just doing it because you want to achieve the task. There is something beyond that task. So you might be doing something, uh, but that something is achieving something greater. And and you don't have to be religious to have that spiritual intelligence. And that's why there's been obviously this boom in in mindfulness and uh, meditation, because I think all of that contributes to you developing that spiritual intelligence that you need, um, that I think we need, especially in this in, in the day and age that we live in, uh, when it comes to all kinds of activities, whether you're leading, whether you're following, whether you're at home with your family, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. That's great. And, and so moving on, before joining the uh, Ministry of Defence, you held some fascinating positions in, in several high-profile and iconic organisations. A Muslim chaplain with the NHS as a uh, project lead at uh, St Pancras Hospital tackling mental health, and, and you were the first full-time Muslim chaplain at uh, Wandsworth Prison, I understand. So reflecting on your time spent with these institutions, what did your experiences teach you there about leadership? Um, there's obviously a, a lot of things, and I was quite early in my journey as a leader in those roles that that I held. But, you know, reflecting back to those years, I think one thing that really helped me solidify my role in those institutions um, and be seen to be credible was relationships. Mm -hmm. I think relationships um, 
I mean, not just in those organizations, but if I look back at my experience, I think because you have to understand these were this was the early 2000s. All kinds of things were happening in the world. And, you know, someone looking like me ends up in institutions for the first time, you know, yeah. who is this guy? At? Who is this guy with a beard, with a funny hat? Sometimes I used to wear my robes. So I really used to, I really used to stand out. And so, you know, one of the things I thought was really important was building relationships across the organization, top to bottom. Yeah. Um, and it was about giving people a chance to know you. So it's about it was about getting to know people, but it's also about giving people a chance to know you. You know, how um how far would you go to let people let people know who you are? Yeah. Um and I think sometimes, you know, we're very good at we're, we're very good at um going out and trying to learn about people. But sometimes we need to let a little bit of our own self out because otherwise it just becomes one way. So how can we be confident enough to share a little bit about ourselves with other people? And I think that's where the real, you know, relationship and the real trust um, kind of begins. Um, the other thing um, I think that really um, struck uh, out to me in the early days was basically to never judge a book by its cover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this goes both ways. Sometimes you could think that someone is not capable or uh, and you might judge them just because of the way they look or the way uh, they they might behave or the way they might do something that you don't understand and uh, you dismiss um, that individual or that person or the idea um, but on the other hand sometimes there could be someone that look that looks extremely capable you know and extremely on side and you might think that you can't get better than that yeah um, and you're you're very wrong so that was a another really interesting lesson and last but not least um uh, that i'd like to to share with you is that i was you know working in institutions which um allowed me to see humanity um at its weakest or maybe at its most vulnerable i saw humanity at its rawest in a sense whether it was sickness whether it was disease whether it was mental health whether it was uh, crime, uh, justice, and incarceration, and victims of such behavior. Uh, and so um, one thing that I think I very early, very learned very early on was, you know, the skill of empathy, being empathetic. Yeah. Um, I think that's really, uh, that's really important to have uh, in the variety of roles that we, we tend to have in, in our lives, and particularly in positions of leadership, is how do we, how are we able to put ourselves in another person's shoes and and how whilst having the empathy one thing i think is key is how do we differentiate between what makes like what is it that um challenges the person uh, as a human being um from what it is that you're asking them to do i don't know if that makes sense because it kind of makes that, that you can't separate it per se, but how do you see the person beyond what it is that you're working with them on? Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So those are the so so obviously when I was working in the NHS or when I was working in the prison service or when I'm working with mental people with how do you look beyond that? How can you look a little bit beyond that to really dig a little bit deeper?
And as you said yourself, you were the first in these institutions. Were you, were you welcomed and were people empathetic to you? Um, I, I guess the best way to the best way to put it was uh, is that you know these institutions were a reflection of society, yeah, and a reflection of what was happening in society, and so um, uh, though I I would be I would be lying if I said that in the most part I, I did I, I did feel you know um, I didn't feel welcome I did feel welcome yeah, in, yeah. in the most part, mm -hmm. and I did get a lot of support. And that was another uh, uh, another important lesson that I did take away is that is to go out and find those people that on on whose shoulders you can stand, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know. And so uh, I did. But on other uh, other times, you know, other times, you know, I felt extremely alone, extremely isolated, uh, really um, distressed about how some people had behaved uh, towards me, and it wasn't because. It wasn't because I wasn't doing my job properly. It was because of all kinds of other reasons. You know, is yeah. it because of the color of my skin? Is it because of my faith? Or is it because people don't like religion full stop? Uh, is it because I look different? And, um, uh, and, and that was challenging. But knowing, knowing, uh, knowing the people that were there for you um, helped to mitigate some of those challenges. And you said, you talked about reflecting society, those institutions reflecting society. As society changed throughout the... 2000s and, and later and, and to today has that made it easier or are there still still those challenges do they still persist um you know i mean sadly world affairs you know without specifying um any particular region or place or person yeah. <laughs> has meant that progress has been slow mm -hmm. We saw with, you know, the Black Lives Matters um, protests and movement and the spin-offs from that, how people um, felt that they could relate to that regardless of what background they were from, shows that we still have a lot to do uh, in, in our society and yeah. um, things haven't uh, necessarily got easy. And as you know, we've got, you know, in the armed forces, in the MOD, we've got a variety of networks. We've got yeah. like a Muslim network, a Christian network, a LGBT network, a BAME network. Um, you know, why do we feel that we still need these networks? Mm. You know, if we, we, if we were where we want to be, and I know we want to be somewhere better, then why would, why would we need these networks? Because we would just be one big network, right? Yeah. I guess success looks like when those those networks are no longer required. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. But don't get me wrong. Um, I've seen, you know, uh, leadership really put the energy behind this. Mm -hmm. um, I've met, you know, people that are really passionate about making sure that we create an inclusive environment, uh, uh, environment where diversity embrace, is embraced. And we have senior leaders doing um, reverse mentoring now. We have, you know, senior leaders bringing in people of different backgrounds to basically tell them how it is. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, we've got leaders who have got nothing to do with the network, um, uh, becoming champions of those, those networks and becoming yeah. advocates of those networks because they ascribe value to the importance of diversity and inclusion and challenging some of the discrepancies that we might find in society. So would you say the armed forces are, are making positive steps forward? Definitely, 100%. I mean, 
we've got a long way to go in terms of making our armed forces reflective of society. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we know that Muslims are underrepresented within the armed forces. And for, for that matter, most of the other major world faiths, be, except Christianity, is underrepresented within the armed forces in terms of the population in, in society. So I don't think that our lack of diversity and inclusion is the only thing that is stopping people from joining the armed forces. There are a variety of other reasons. But that is one element of people's perceptions about how they will be valued and respected or included within within the institution. But, you know, my 15 years of experience uh, now uh, working within the armed forces, you know, I can see that, you know, uh, huge strides have been made to create an inclusive environment. You know, for example, just as you know, Ramadan is um, on at the moment. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Muslims in the military have been have been fasting. And I wouldn't I wouldn't have expected this 10 years ago. But now we're having people in regiments where there are Muslim soldiers fasting together with the uh, Muslim soldier, you know, in, in solidarity. Yeah. We know of an incident where um, I think it's a signals regiment where they are in solidarity with Ramadan. What they've decided to do is to collectively um, run, walk or cycle or swim the length of the journey to Mecca and back. Wow. So I think it's about eight thousand. It might be about eight thousand miles or something. And so, and and they're raising they're raising money for charity whilst doing that. And and so, uh, what you're finding is that there's a uh, there's a lot more ease around diversity at the lowest levels of um uh, of the military that may have not been experienced before. But you know, there are still um, other influences um, mm-hmm. that want to impress the minds of our young people. And so we need to stay vigilant. Well, it's encouraging we are moving in the right direction. And uh, and of course, we still have challenges ahead of us as, as wide as society does. And I guess that's a nice segue to, to looking at your role within the MOD, a, a critical role in helping us move forward in the right direction. So turning to your role then as a, um, a Muslim chaplain to the, to the military, and just reflect on the history of um, Muslims in our, in our organization. And as you know better than I, the Muslim community has made an invaluable contribution to, uh, to the British Armed Forces for well over 100 years. Uh, and I know some pretty high-profile high examples in uh, Qudidah Khan in World War I being the first Muslim um, recipient of the Victoria Cross with a further seven to follow thereafter in the Great War. 400,000 uh, Muslims serving alongside him in, in that war and countless more in World War II thereafter. And of course, more recently, Muslim soldiers um, and, and, uh, and uh, sailors contributing to uh, operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I guess it's astonishing then it, that it took until 2005 to appoint the first Muslim civilian chaplain to, to the military. And I just wondered if I could just pause on that history and ask what your reflections are on that remarkable history. And, and do you think this valuable contribution is given the credit it, it deserves? Yeah, I think, you know, this, you know, history is a really important one. And it was unpacked a lot more than it had been uh, during our centenary, kind of the centenary of the First World War um, commemorations that we had. Yeah. Uh, we were able to really unpack a lot of this, a lot of the history. But I think it's, I think it's, it is a part of history, which I think um, of our military history that isn't celebrated as enough. And it is something that could be taught in school more. And it does two things, I think. 
one well maybe even three things <laughs> one thing it does is that it helps in this example muslims who are growing up in this country who potentially are in a bit of an identity pre- predicament mm-hmm. you know about you know where do i belong uh, who, who am i you know they're asking these fundamental questions and a lot of the times when they're looking at screens or they're looking at social media they don't see a great uh, depiction of uh, of islam and muslims particularly in recent years and so for them to be able to actually see that this country is what it is because from amongst many faiths muslims also contributed to make britain what it is today i think once i gave a uh once i gave an um, an example that if you were to do a dna test on the on the soil of 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 the united kingdom you know we would find that every single culture every single religion every single ethnicity is represented in that dna mm-hmm. um and so where this kind of where this kind of beautiful tapestry of of color and 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 patterns and if you take one out of it then britain is no longer what it is, what it is today so for the for them to be able to see that britain is what it is because their ancestors contributed to make it what it is i think they begin to feel a more stronger sense of belonging here secondly there are people who question whether minorities should be here in this country or not mm-hmm. uh, and their place within uh, british society and whether they can be equal citizens or not or whether they they should be kind of put on a boat and sent somewhere else and i think this history uh, reinforces that actually they should be here and they are here because uh, they are part and parcel of what makes britain what it is and you take this diversity away from this country and you're left with something very different and you won't like it <laughs> um and the third thing is that those people who are potentially thinking of joining the armed forces or are already in the armed forces um can look to this history and feel proud that they're not just joining something that has just started 20 years ago but there's a long at least 100 years worth of history that they are, that they are contributing to and you know people have died defending britain 100 years ago and you know up until now we had you know lance corporal jabron hashmi who served in afghanistan who was the first and probably i think the only muslim who Uh, was killed in action in Afghanistan and so you see this whole history starting 100 years ago but still continuing today I think it's a really powerful message you've just delivered there and yeah. and, and I agree I think there's a lot more we need to do to recognize that the rich tapestry of, of that military history So turning then to your your role as a as a Muslim civilian chaplain to the military and that of your current role as as Islamic advisor to the chief of the defense staff and the service chiefs I wondered if you could uh, tell us a little bit more about your responsibilities in those roles Hmm. So my role as um you know a chaplain to the armed forces was you know very much about providing spiritual pastoral and religious support to um the muslim men and women who are serving within the armed forces and so when when I was chaplain I was covering the three services all around the world so I used to say my parish is, is as big as the british isles <laughs> um because I wasn't just dedicated to one service it was all three services so it was quite it was quite a big role and you know i found uh, i found the role extremely humbling because these were people who had you know uh, you know a tiny minority of the muslim population who had decided to join the armed forces and sometimes they joined the armed forces against the support of their community or against the support of their families mm-hmm. so it was a difficult decision for them to make but they served you know with pride and with commitment uh, in, in the armed forces so that was you know 
extremely humbling to be able to be for them and 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 also what it did was it, it boosted the morale of the individuals of the muslim faith that were yeah. serving in the armed forces and as you know it wasn't just most at the muslim chaplain we had a hindu sikh yeah. um jewish uh, uh, and buddhist chaplain also uh, join alongside me but also what was really powerful was to be able to support their family because sometimes the army or the military sent these people uh, into very remote areas where there was no diverse community and so the family had to pick up their the bags and kind of go to a, a, a community where there wasn't a mosque there wasn't mm. a halal butchers uh, you know they had to travel 100 miles to get halal meat for example sometimes uh, to cook to cook in the home so you know i valued the sacrifices that the families were making and it's not just muslim families you know i know all families within the military make huge sacrifices and and they do need to be recognized and, and celebrated and they are they are the the success behind um they well, what do they say behind every successful man there's a woman they say something like that don't they but you know i think behind the success of the armed forces uh are its people and the success behind its people and the families Absolutely. um that that are behind them they're the backbone of, of what makes makes us who we are um and you know they give us permission to put the people uh in the armed forces in in very demanding situations and so we should be grateful for that permission that they that they give us in a sense if i can put it that way but last but not least i think to be able to work with the chain of command to create a better understanding of the diversity within the units and within the regiments and battalions uh, was also another extremely useful and uh, rewarding task uh, to be an advocate for the people in the units so that they could feel included within the environment that they found themselves in and in terms of the role now so so if i were to describe my chaplaincy role as a kind of a inwards and downwards focus mm-hmm. my current role is a upwards and outwards focus um so it's about helping through cds and service chiefs and other senior leaders it's about helping defense build strategic relationships with muslim populations you know the idea of having an islamic advisor to the armed forces is when we looked out into uh into the horizon and thought about where we're going to be operating in over the next 20 years or so and what regions of the world are going to be important for us a big part of the muslim world is is something that um that we can't miss basically yeah, yeah. and so the idea was having an islamic advisor who continues to operate as an imam but also operates as someone who can build those bridges uh, between um, nations and communities so my role is about building those um, strategic relationships with our own population in the uk but also with uh, populations uh, around the world and um, helping our senior leaders navigate some of the challenges that 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 might bring bring about If I could turn to your point there about building bridges with your community specifically to set the conditions if we can just talk about the army's values and standards I know you've spoken um, a briefly about it already but how do the british army's values and standards and for our for our listeners our values of courage discipline respect for others integrity loyalty and selfless commitment with um standards that are professional uh, acceptable behaviors and lawful how do these reflect the the thoughts the principles and the and the values of islam the the values and standards you know of the the armed forces and and the army are you know absolutely compatible with the values or values of islam there is no value there that islam would say that it does it can't relate it can't relate to 
And so courage, discipline, respect, integrity, all of these uh, values, selfless commitment are, you know, values that Islam holds dearly. And so therefore, any Muslim wanting to join the military, they will find that there would be no contradiction in them serving uh, within within the armed forces. And, um, you know, as I said earlier, we're in Ramadan at the moment and fasting is all about that discipline and selfless commitment and respect. And I can remember a story at the time uh, of the Prophet when they were in a when they were in a battle and the battle ended and, and the wounded were in the battlefield. And um, some of the people who are not wounded and more capable came into the battlefield with, with water to give to the wounded. And um, this individual went to, to one person and said, you know, here, here have some water. And he was about to drink this water and he heard a groan coming from, from a distance. And there was another person that was injured. And he said, no, go and give that person water first. So he went in to that person and he gave he started to give him water and he heard a third person groan and he goes, no, don't give me water. Give the third person the water. By the time you got to the third person, the third person sadly had died. He came back to the second person, the second person had died and he came back to the first person and the first person had died. And that was the kind of, you know, selfless commitment that we found on the on the battlefield during the early days of Islam as well. And, you know, we see that tradition continue within within the British Armed Forces. But also what's important are the standards. You know, I think the idea of, you know, operating within within the law, to have a strong set of rule, rules of engagement, uh, to operate according to the international law of armed conflict in the Geneva Convention. When you look at Islam, you find that, you know, St. Augustine's and Thomas Aquinas's just war theory uh, are absolutely in line with the Islamic idea of bearing arms. And unlike people's perception of the idea of war uh, in, in Islam through a mis- construed understanding of jihad is not necessarily uh, what what um, Islam promotes. Um, and actually, I also find that the, the just war theory, you know, um, leans heavily on on the idea of just war within 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 Islam. You know, I can remember an incident where during a battle, one um, one disciple of the Prophet decides to kill an uh, uh, an enemy who apparently uh, surrenders. And uh, he still goes on to to kill him, even though he was surrendering and he was disarmed. And this got to this got to the Prophet Muhammad, and um, he said he said, "Why did you kill him?" And he said he only surrendered because he was scared of the spear, not because he really wanted to. <laughs> and so the Prophet said, "Did you op- open up his heart and look into his chest?" you know, to really figure out what his intention was. And so we find that you know these kinds of rules were uh, implemented. Uh, at the times of war in Islam, and when we look at the the values and standards of the army, they're fully compatible, and there should be no hesitation for uh, a Muslim to feel uncomfortable joining the armed forces and uh, to 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 fight for 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 their country. I say to some some people in the community sometimes that just to to hit this message home: Is it better to serve in a Muslim military that is unjust and doesn't have values, or to join a non-Muslim military that is just and has values, and the answer to that is ex- extremely clear. You know, you don't you don't join the British Armed Forces because you're joining a religion. You join the Armed Forces because you're fighting uh, with those values and standards.
That's great. You've actually answered my next question there when I was going to talk about the, uh, the the tension that's not necessarily um, bespoke to, to to Islam, of course, but the tension between uh, the role of the profession of arms and the taking of uh, the taking of life. But I think you've answered that um, mm-hmm. uh, succinctly there. From what you've just described, I imagine one of your roles then is is to try and dispel misperceptions um, about uh, from wider society about the compatibility of Islam with service life. So, how do you go about tackling this, and how do you tackle some of the the legacy feelings towards the armed forces? You know, firstly, I c- I can say that the relationship between the armed forces and the Muslim community hasn't been hasn't been stronger than it is at the moment. The work that we've done. Um, engaging with the Muslim community in this country and the work that they've done to um, build those bridges is is extremely, you know, is very commendable, extremely commendable. Um, But, you know, there are still um, uh, some misperceptions out there about what the armed forces are about and how they operate. And so I think it's really important that we educate people about the, um, what can I say, um, the distribution of responsibilities in a sense that mm-hmm. you know the armed forces uh, don't necessarily decide themselves unlike uh, militaries in other countries that could wake up one morning and you know decide that they wanted to um, carry out some kind of operation and they can go ahead and do it uh, in the, in the UK um, you know we live in a democratic system and therefore it's our political leaders that decide through the parliament decide where the armed forces will be deployed or not but the key thing that i've learned uh, and i talk to people about is that the military might not decide where it goes but it definitely decides how it operates when it goes where it goes yeah um and the mil- the, the political um uh, leaders don't ha- don't necessarily have a say in that. When they get onto the ground, uh, they operate, you know, uh, with integrity, uh, with respect, uh, and within the law. Um, and so, kind of uh, explaining that, I think, is is really important. But also, you know, when you come to legacy issues, it's also about talking about the military uh, doesn't choose its wars based on. Uh, a faith or a culture or a religion, it bases its decisions, you know, it, it goes to conflict, it goes into battle uh, based on the security uh, needs of our country. Mm-hmm. Um, so today, uh, our security might be at risk because of a, a country where uh, or environment where there is a large Muslim population, but tomorrow it might not be. You know, for example, if you look at where our major threats are coming from today, they might not be kinetic and they might not not be from the parts of the world where there are majority Muslims. So so um, uh, and so we need to understand that the past conflicts that the military has been involved in and the future conflicts that the military are going to be involved in are going to be very will be very different. But ultimately, the aim is the same thing. The aim is to keep up us, the British population, safe. And that's not one community and not the other community. It's all of us. And so these are some of the conversations that I have with have with people to help them um, dispel some of the myths that they have. But but also, for example, the, the system that we live in, if if um, things go wrong, then those uh, then those systems and those people will be held to account. And so we, we had the Chilcot report. I don't know any other country in the world where we had a public in, such a open public inquiry uh, into our decision to go to war uh, in Iraq. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some of the most senior people were held to account and had to answer uh, answer for that. So, you know, we can be we can rest assured that if we if we do make mistakes, we don't sweep them under the carpet. We uh, make sure that we learn the lessons uh, uh, from those mistakes um, and we educate people on what we've learned. You touch on culture there, and I'd like to expand on that, if I may, and, um, and looking at cultural understanding. Before any of our soldiers deploy into a theatre of operations, they will undergo cultural training, as you know, to understand the environment and most importantly, understand the people that they're working alongside and amongst. And this allows our, our people to, to be culturally aware and understand the nuances of, of the different operating environments, uh, environments developing a, a cultural competence, if you will. So would you mind reflecting on your experiences of, of cultural competence within the armed forces? And, and do you think we do enough? Um, you know, I um, came to work with the armed forces in, in 2005. And, you know, we had the war in Iraq going on and we had the war in Afghanistan going on and things were getting in one messy in one place, one place or the other. But that conflict was in the backdrop of the 9-11 attacks. And so when I came into the armed forces, working in the, to, to work with the armed forces in 2005, I felt that our cultural competence was not where it needed to be. And I, I understood that, understood that particularly firstly on the home base, because very quickly when people realized that we had an imam of our own in the military, I was being invited, you know, across um, the country to RF stations, to army bases, and to naval bases to talk about Islam because people wanted to get to know about Islam. And when I went to sp- speak at these places, what I realized was I wasn't there to teach Islam or make people understand Islam. I felt that Islam was being put in the dock. And so somehow I was having to justify the actions of certain groups and certain people, if that makes sense. And so that thinking uh, meant that there wasn't a desire to create an inclusive environment or a desire to create a diverse environment. It was about um, it was about saying, can you explain yourself, please? You know, why why is Islam like this? Why is Islam like that? Um, and so I find that very early on our cultural competence wasn't wasn't that great. And I think the cultural competence wasn't that great, not because of 2005 or 2001. I think it was to do with the complacency that we had for the 30 or 40 years before that, okay. if that makes sense. Uh, because we didn't foresee um, what kind of environment we were going to be in at the turn of the 21st century, if I can put it that way. Yeah. And we didn't know what kind of conflicts we were going to be involved in. And so we were just not ready to tackle the cultural challenges that were going to be thrown our way as the 21st century kind of uh, kind of began. Um, and so because we were not able to do cultural competency well at home, I don't think we did cultural competency well on operations uh, when, when we were deployed. Having said that, you know, very quickly, we did realize that we lacked cultural competency, we lacked cultural awareness, and things were put into place. But I don't think 
that we embedded that cultural competency into our strategic thinking. Mm-hmm. And if I were to put my finger on one thing that I think that led to some of our failures in our current operations, I would have to say it would it was because our because of our lack of cultural competence that we made some of the mistakes that we did in the in the places that we went. And are we doing enough now? I think that the challenge, the challenge, uh, the challenge we have is, I think on the home front we're doing a lot. You know, we're we're definitely doing a lot on the home front in creating a diverse and inclusive environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we there's some way for us to still go to become culturally competent to operate in the new world that we find ourselves in, yeah. post hard power operations. Uh, into soft power operations. Uh, if the new base that we're going to be working in or competing in is is the non-kinetic space, is mm-hmm. the uh, the soft power space, um, then I think we still have a, a little bit more to do before we can come credible um, credible actors in, in the new world that we're going to find ourselves in post Brexit, particularly. And turning specifically to operations, can you cite examples of where? Perhaps we haven't struck the right balance between being culturally competent and achieving military effect. And what can we learn from those examples? Yeah. Look, um, going on operations, you know, to kind of be the religious advisor out there was was pretty challenging um, because there was this perception that there was a very um, kind of simplistic equation. You know, um, the Taliban are bad. The Taliban are religious, and therefore religion is bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there was very kind of simple, simple equation. But also the challenge we had, I had, was this idea of separation between church and state. So there was this perception that we don't get involved in religion because we come from secular countries, or we come from countries where there is a total separation between church and state. And so if we engage in religion or engage in deep culture, a deeply traditional system traditional societies, then, you know, we're somehow um, going against this idea of there being a separation between church and state. So to try and get people to understand that actually, you know, for example, in Afghanistan, religious leaders and religious institutions were key opinion formers and influencers was was a, was a, was was pretty challenging, yeah. um, but the the best way to do that was to explain to people, you know, how we do religion religion at home. Um, you know, for example, in the U.S., you have the dollar bill and it says "In God We Trust." Yeah. You know, when the U.S. president pledges oath to take on his his or her presidency, they they swear an oath on the Bible. You know, uh, and so religion does play a role within our society, just in just in a different way. So some of the you know. Uh, repercussions of not engaging in that part of the human terrain was that when we did some projects we didn't quite understand we didn't quite get them right so one example was uh, i can recall we went to a village and we saw the women get their buckets and walk a mile or two down into the valley to go to the lake uh, to wash their clothes to get the water and then walk back up and and come home. And so we felt sorry for them because they were having to do all this hard work. And so what we decided to do was put a water pump in the village. 
Yeah. So we put a water pump in the in the village, um, and then we came back a few months later, and we found that the pump had been um, vandalized and mm-hmm. was no longer operational. Um, and they said that must be the Taliban because they they didn't like the fact that we put a water pump in for the ladies. But after a little bit of investigation, we found out that it was the women who had damaged the water pump because what we had just done is we'd messed with their cultural ecosystem. You know, uh, this was a time for them to get away from them from from their men, to have a bit of girl time, to catch up on a bit of gossip, as well as wash their clothes and bring some water back. And what we'd done by putting this pump in the village is taken that away from them. So you know, we uh, we went into these societies thinking that the solutions were our solutions, not thinking about what solutions would work for them. Uh, another example I can remember was uh, working at headquarters, Regional Command Southwest in um, in Kandahar. We had a relationship with the religious and cultural advisor in, in the Afghan National Army. And um, I can remember going over with, with a colonel, um, British colonel, and, you know, having conversations with, 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 with the re- religious leaders in the Afghan National Army. And they they would continuously ask for speakers, and the colonel said they keep asking for, for, for asking me for speakers, and I'm not going to give them speakers. Why do they need speakers? For they're just going to take them home or something like that. And um, anyway, um, I had some more conversations with them with them, and I found out that the reason why they wanted speakers is was they wanted to do uh, the call to prayer from the base loudly so that the local people could hear the call to prayer. Now, what was happening is that the insurgency was saying, oh, uh, those Afghans that are joining the Afghan National Army, they're not really Muslims, they're not practicing, they're not praying, and they're doing all kinds of other sins and vices, and so they shouldn't be trusted and you shouldn't support them. So what this what the what these religious leaders wanted to do was to um, put up speakers so that the local population could hear the call to prayer and know that actually they were praying, and not doing all kinds of uh, other business in 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 their in their barracks. And so, um, so it was you know it it took a little bit of time for us to understand the nuances of the culture and the nuances of the of the faith in 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 the society, um, and you know. To an extent, you know, it wasn't until 2010 that we started thinking about some of these things. And even though we made some progress, potentially, um, uh, potentially, it might have been a little bit late in the day to to start embedding things that uh, would have given us a lot more benefits over time. Two very illustrative examples there of, um, I guess, cultural misunderstanding, but also going right back to your point at the beginning about empathy, isn't it, and and and, mm-hmm. and ability to put yourself in in someone else's shoes mm-hmm. and, and that links what you just discussed there and your work out in afghanistan links nicely to our next uh, uh, question which is um in 2009 general um sir david richards then cgs professional head of the british army asked you to deploy to afghanistan to establish a religious engagement strategy in support of isaf the uh, international security and assistance force and you made regular deployments into theaters you've already described and were subsequently awarded an obe in recognition for your for your work so first off can you just tell us a little bit more about that work about the religious engagement strategy that you took part in and how effective was it yeah i mean what uh, general david richards you know had uh, understood very very early on when he himself went out uh, there as com isaf that you know uh, we were operating in this you know very 
highly religious, highly cultural, highly traditional society. And that the insurgency was taking full advantage of that and um, using that uh, as a means to mobilize people um, towards, um, towards the insurgency. Uh, and he realized that we were just not being able to compete within that space. And after a number of attempts of trying to get me deployed, um, uh, due to some internal politics, the first few times he wasn't able to, <laughs> um, but eventually he managed to to get me out there. When we went out there, you know, I mean, you know, there was some form of religious engagement going on. You know, we'd meet with religious leaders or we'd we'd hand out Qurans, which I thought was really odd because why would we give Qurans to Muslims? <laughs> Um, and we know the risk of uh, of non-Muslims handling Qurans in, in that region. But besides that, there was just this total um, total no-go area in terms of religion. Um, you know, I think the British would were a little bit more comfortable in in exploring engagement more broadly. But there were others that might find it you know difficult. Mm. And so um, the idea was. If we engage in religion, it's uh, we might offend people. It's all too difficult. Let's just leave it. Uh, rather than saying that actually uh, this is all too difficult and there are risks, but how can we mitigate those risks? And how can we how can we get the advice and the guidance that we need to be able to um, uh, to be able to engage within this space? And you know, going out there, you know, as I said earlier, the the idea was you know religion is the problem that was the kind of perception yeah. and that perception was there because the taliban presented themselves to be highly religious and therefore highly credible but yeah. actually there were com there were elements uh, large elements of the uh, of the afghan population that didn't uh, sign up to uh, the insurgency's religious ideology uh, and and what we had done is we had put so much energy behind fighting the religious extremists that we'd forgotten about the religious moderates. Yeah, yeah. And, and so what happened to the religious moderates was either they became ineffective or uh, they decided uh, to take a back seat or they decided to join the religious extremists because that's where the money was and that's where the attention was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the idea was how do we, how do we empower uh, the religious moderates um, in 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 the country who were looking for um, they they had the same grievances as the religious extremists, but they were just looking at different ways of resolving those resolving those issues. So so um, it took a long time to convince some of the senior leaders we we needed that. But one way that we were able to do that is. Uh, there were some elections taking place, and we decided to ask a couple of mosques to um, have a polling station in the mosque. Yeah. And those polling stations, which were on the mosques, had a high attendance to vote. Okay. And it's only then that the penny dropped and said, there's something here. <laughs> we should be doing more around religion. It was then, I think, um, General Petraeus sent a, a frago down saying every regional command should have a religious engagement strategy. So what were some of the biggest challenges you faced in, in developing the strategy, but also implementing it? What were the biggest leadership challenges? I think change, you know, the, 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 how, do you, how do you make people comfortable when change comes? So if you've been since 2001 not doing 
something. And all of a sudden in 2010, this guy comes along and says, you need to do more religious engagement. <laughs> um, because, you know, that's, um, that's a key component of our heart. You know, we, we, talk, we talk about, pop, pop, we spoke about population-centric counterinsurgency. We talk about the Hearts and Minds campaign. But you can't do that in, in a society where religion is where they turn to for their guidance, for the mm-hmm. spiritual guidance. It's through the religious lens that they see themselves. It's through the religious lens that they see us. And we haven't explored how we might work within that space. So I think the biggest challenge was to get people to change their um, behavior towards the idea of there being something credible within the religious um, religious space and i guess you can you can only do that by you know uh, speaking to people that matter explaining to them and convincing them through uh, through various um, both um, through experience and through data that this is something that you know needs to be done um, and then once you've got the people that matter on side then hopefully in the military everything kind of falls into place <laughs> So, so I think that was that was the biggest uh, that was the biggest challenge. I think. So it's about identifying the the key stakeholders and uh, effective communication to those to allow that to cascade throughout the organisation to drive that change. Exactly, exactly. Excellent. But also acknowledging the, the the difficulties that they will they they will face in bringing about yeah. this change. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, I'd like to talk about um, trust, critical component of any leader follower leader led relationship at, at whatever level in an earlier podcast we spoke with um, archbishop justin welby about the erosion of trust in society and how some people are quick to judge and condemn others with relatively little thought of of its impact it's quite a quite a divisive trend how important is trust to you as a muslim leader and to wider society in the challenges i think that we're facing in society at the moment trust is absolutely essential we're finding that neighbors don't trust each other. Mm-hmm. We're finding that people don't trust their doctor. They don't trust their dentist. They don't trust the nurse at the, uh, at the hospital. Uh, they don't trust the police. Um, they don't trust the local authority. They don't trust the government. They don't trust their religious leaders. And, and so uh, the erosion of trust is, uh, is a big challenge uh, for, uh, for us at the moment. You know, faith communities don't trust each other. You know, painting that bleak picture. I do also, you know, want to commend all the work that's going on in society and in the community to bring communities together. But there is a big challenge about, you know, building, uh, building trust. So I think trust is 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 key. I can remember, you know, uh, the, the the story of the Prophet Muhammad when he comes down uh, from the cave where he's been meditating and he wants to give his message to the people. And the first thing he says to them is, "Do you trust me?" You know, have you known me to be a trustworthy person? You know, am I an honest person? And everybody says yes. And it's only after that that he gives his message. (laughs) So he establishes establishes that trust with the people and the acknowledgement that they trust him before he gives his message. And, 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 And that trust will only come through people being open. I think people being transparent, uh, people wanting uh, setting thing setting process in place where people can be uh, accountable, and uh, uh, and if if uh, people don't in society don't see some of these other key uh, principles uh, being advocated and adopted by our leaders, then um, I think uh, the erosion of trust will continue. 
but I think uh, trust is key to creating a, a healthy society um, at all levels. I couldn't agree more. Um, mm. uh, so specifically with faith and faith leaders like yourself, um, how do you go about trying to mend these divisions in our society? Uh, I think faith leaders, you know, have a key role in in um, contributing to to trust, um, building trust within society. But I think it starts first and foremost by uh, being able to uh, uh, being able to be uh, frank and honest about your own your own weaknesses and your own challenges. Yeah. So if you want if you want um, to build trust, uh, if you if you want to build trust in society, then you're going to have to be objective about it. So trust is not something that goes one way. It's something that happens. It's a two-way process. It happens both ways. And um, I think what faith leaders need to be able to do is to also accept the challenges that we might have in our own communities, in our own societies, um, in our own kind of communities and our own groups uh, and say that you know these are challenges that, that we face we acknowledge them and we're going to work to deal with them too and i think that will help to to build that trust so i think faith leaders can bring special principles and values this transcendental approach to building trust that secular leaders can't and on top of that i think uh, once they establish that transcendental authority, they also need to be honest about the weaknesses and the challenges that they have within their own communities to be able to build that trust and uh, agree to um, uh, contribute to resolving those issues in their own in their own uh, in their own communities to be able to build that trust. I hope that makes sense. Absolutely, I think your point there about trust being two ways is mm. is, is a critical takeaway without a doubt. Um, Imam Asim, it's been a fascinating conversation, um, but you're not quite off the hook just yet. Um, before you leave, I'd like to uh, to give you some quick fire questions. So first of all, who is your most inspirational leader from history and why? Hmm. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. definitely inspires me. You know, he was, he was a religious uh, person himself. Um, he was inspired by faith. But the key thing is he was able to bring about change without violence. Yeah. Um, and I think that's... Um, in today's day and age, I think that a gift that is difficult to to come by, to persist and to look, uh, to to wait uh, for for the the results of your struggle, uh, and you know uh, his struggle we continue to benefit from today. So I think I do take inspiration from him. It's quite an iconic leader. What is the most valuable leadership lesson that you have learned? The most valuable uh, lesson I've learned is that along with having some kind of leadership skills and capability what really harnesses leadership is your character mm -hmm. so um, as well as developing those skills that you need to be a leader you need to build your, your 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 moral character and once you couple that with your leadership skills you definitely make a formidable leader um, you can't just be a leader and not have all the other cues that we spoke about earlier whether it's emotional intelligence or intellectual uh, capability or spiritual um, intelligence all these components make uh, have to make you a holistic leader with hindsight what would you tell a young um, Islam hafiz about leadership don't ask for it <laughs> and uh, um, if you get it then you know put 101 percent behind it great answer 
What is society's biggest leadership challenge in the future? I think the biggest leadership challenge for the future, considering the leadership styles that we've seen in recent years, is how how leadership will be able to bring communities together. How leadership is going to be going to be able to bring um, societies and nations and and people together ultimately. You know, we're in the pandemic, and we've seen that the pandemic. You know, has brought the best out in people, but it's also brought the worst out in some people. So, how uh, going forward in the future is leadership going to be able to bring communities and nations and people together, um, uh, rather than uh, rather than tear us apart or or divide us? And I think, last but not least, on this note, technology you know has a key role to play in this. Technology is going to be something that leadership is going to have to be more comfortable with and more savvy about to be able to compete within the space where anybody can become a leader. So plenty of challenges for us to, to deal with, but um, Imam Asim, I think um, for what you've demonstrated today and all the hard work and dedication that you've shown over over many decades now, you, you're right at the heart of dealing with some, with some of these challenges. It's been an absolute privilege to speak to you today. Thank you for joining us. But most importantly, as I say, thank you for your service and everything you do, not just to drive positive change in, in the armed forces, but to, to build those communities, build those bridges, um, and to make our society a stronger and better society for it. Thank you very much indeed for your time. No, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Imam Asim as much as I did. What a truly engaging, purposeful and yet humble leader he is. There are a number of very important messages which I drew from from our conversation. First, where Imam Asim addressed the misperceptions from wider society regarding the compatibility of Islam with service life. By drawing symmetries between the Islamic faith and the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst motto, serve to lead. And very appropriately drawing directly on the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad to illustrate these synergies. Furthermore, he went on to emphasize the military ethics outlined in the just war theory and how these align with the values within Islam, in turn highlighting that no Muslim should be uncomfortable with joining the armed forces. To further address misperceptions, he argues, it is important to educate people around the distribution of responsibility. In a democratic society, of course, it is the political leaders who determine and authorize our deployment on operations. However, it is the armed forces who decide how to operate, ensuring that we do so with integrity, respect, and of course, operating within the law, all linked to our values and standards. Imam Asim also touched on the challenges faced by the military in tackling some of the issues of wider society in regards to diversity, inclusivity, and equality. And although the armed forces are taking steps in the right direction, he argued this change can be slow and more must be done to ensure Muslims are represented in the armed forces. We also had an interesting discussion on cultural competence in which Imam Asim illustrated where we haven't necessarily got it right previously, despite our people's best intentions. And yet through hard work and open dialogue, and of course good leadership, including by Imam Asim himself on operations in Afghanistan, lessons were learned and positive change was made. And he linked this point nicely to the concept of empathy, where he argued that in order to be an effective leader, one must show empathy to others, seeing life from their perspective. He also touched on the concepts of 
spiritual and emotional competence, both of which he argues are fundamental qualities to his leadership style. A leader must take time to get to know themselves in order to better lead those around them, but also to take the time to get to know the people and build relationships of those they lead in order to build trust effectively. And this leads me to my final takeaway from today's discussion, that of trust. And Imam Asim echoed similar thoughts to those of Archbishop Justin Welby in a, in a previous podcast with the Centre for Army Leadership. Whereby they both argue that trust is one of the biggest challenges facing society today, whereby we see an erosion of trust in our institutions and a prevalent culture of judgment. However, it is through effective leadership by open, transparent and accountable leaders, as well as effective followership, proactive, supportive and purposeful followers, that trust across our society can be assured. If you like what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast, visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership and follow us on our social media platforms. Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.